This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Coin Gaming. Stick around for more info about them later in the episode. What is up, everyone? I'm Charlie Shrem, and this is Untold Stories, where twice a week we dive deep with crypto's most influential leaders to find out how this movement really came to be. This show is now produced with audio and video, so check us out on YouTube. And guys, I love emails. Send me a message, feedback, and ideas. You can find my email address at untoldstories.com. This show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media production company with over 20 podcasts in their network, including mine and my friends. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io. With that, today's amazing guest is my friend Ido Sademan, who is the founder, chairman, and of the board of Saga, which is this so cool hybrid central bank stablecoin taking all the good aspects of central banking, putting it into the stablecoin that offers the ability to have credit and capital markets, all these cool aspects you can vote on the ability to actually remove the governor of the central bank that is Saga. And we actually talked about what is the history of central banking and is it all bad? Because the world leads us to believe that all banks and all banking is bad, but it's not. There are good aspects of it if we could take it into central banking and understand how it all works for the past, present and future we can understand our own aspects of financial literacy and we can take care of our families and friends better. I'm Charlie Sharma. I'll talk to you guys right in a minute. Ido, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me, Charlie. It's Untold stories. It's, this is going to be a very interesting episode because, you know, we usually talk about timeline and about the people involved in, in this industry. And we talk about the different um, uh, projects and coins and tokens and social experiments. You don't often get an opportunity to talk to someone who's who launched a project a few years ago, had this social experiment, and then be able to take feedback and then change that. And simply the, the reason that is, and to adjust and to adapt, is simply because this industry has not been around long enough. Like Ethereum has only been around a few, a few you know, days, months, years, I don't even know. Um, so you know, we talked about the best, the best thing in this industry is experience, like just having experience teaches you a lot. So when, when someone asks you, you know, why should, uh, um, when someone asks you like, um, what made you uh, a CEO, monetary theorist and economist when you used to be a jazz musician, what do you say? So I, I think that the first thing is, is humility. I'm, I'm not really a monetary theorist. Um, and I keep surrounding myself with, with people that, that are, um, I, you know, I, I came to, to this space uh, early 2017 while uh, leaving, phasing out of 15 years of, um, of managing startups and managing product for startups and wanting to go and, and study political science because clearly something is, uh, is wrong uh, with, with, with our social paradigms. I think now it's, it's as obvious as, uh, as ever. Um, and um, the plan was to, to sort of write a thesis uh, for a VC I, I was a part of um, about, uh, about blockchain. And that made me realize that I'm here to stay for, for a few years, uh, for, for a few dozens of years. Even if you had to be doing a startup all over again, I guess that's what happened to a lot of the the CEOs in the space too. It's like they had startups and they retired. You look at like Joe Lubin and, and uh, Brian Armstrong and, and, you know, they all like, we're all, even Tony Gallippi from BitPay. It's like, they all were retired. A lot of them playing golf already. 
and then they come back running a startup in this industry. Why do you think that is? Like, we could talk about how much it saves world peace and blah, blah, blah. But like, what is it like, realistically, what is it about this industry or about blockchain or just about crypto or whatever? What is it about what we're doing that that do you think um, would make someone jump from working in, I don't know, like medical technology to jump into working in blockchain and potentially for less money? Like, why would someone do that? I, you know, I think it's a sort of a back to renaissance. Uh, being involved in the blockchain industry is really being involved with so many things, with the fascinating technology, but also with political science and economy um, and psychology and sociology. Um, it really allows you a sort of, uh, of a bird's view on, on the state of... Uh, of the state of the world and, and an ability to, to really partake in, in shaping the solutions to the to the problems we Wait, have. Wait, can you repeat those four again? It was political science, sociology, it was monetary theory, and, and there was another uh, one. Political science, sociology, monetary theory, but I could add a few a few dozens yeah. more. Philosophy as well, and anthro- oh, anthropology, anthropology as well. Understanding how human structures, social structures are working um, and, and I think that we are in a time where they are being reshaped. Uh, and I believe that we in the industry are taking part in reshaping it. But, but, but you know, it brings me to your first question, which is that I think that we need to be humble and consider that the startup here is not about three years and exiting. Uh, these are journeys for tens of years because we're touching the fundaments of people's lives and uh, money, for example how money works, who do we trust to issue money, and, and those fundaments are taking a long time to change. So unless, if, if someone came to me and asked me whether they should uh, run a, a blockchain uh, project, I would say that uh, if they're ready to spend the next 20 years, they should, but if they're not, they probably shouldn't. So let's jump into some of these different uh these different um, metrics and, and uh, ideas and, and thoughts, but... Um, especially when it comes to monetary theory and political science. And actually, when we're talking about Saga and, and your newest project in the company, which which uh, you and I have had the fortunate ability of working together on this project, and I'm really, really, uh, when we first started talking and you asked me to to, to join uh, to join you as, as a consultant, I was really uh, mostly excited how cool uh, and novel this is, but, but I, and, and, and why, I'll tell you now, Going through all the different things that you just mentioned, this project touches on all of them. And I'll tell you, in terms of central banking, because most people who get involved in crypto or Bitcoin early on, the messaging was always like, central banking is bad. Banking is bad. Let's have decentralized finance. Most people don't understand that that doesn't really make any sense. Because what is decentralized finance? Why are people so interested in DeFi right now? The reason everyone's so interested in DeFi right now is because of the ability to earn a yield. Now, without banking and without central banking, without the ability to have lending and credit and capital markets, you can't really have a healthy financial like economy and world. And so um, everything up until now with crypto has just been about like coins, tokens, smart contracts, and DAOs. But when you approached me with this project, you said to me, no, the concept of central banking is not bad but how it's run and the centralized factor of banking is what the bad parts are. Let's take the good parts. I know I'm like speaking for you. Um, so the question I have is, 
not the question, but can we go into like, what are the history or like, what have you learned about central banking in general? Was was this, was central banking really came out of like the Bretton Woods conference or the uh, Jekyll Hyde? Is that where uh, is that where it kind of came from? Jekyll Hyde, Jekyll Hyde, Jekyll Island. So I think it started earlier. It came from cheap printing. It came from new, new newspapers. When people could start sharing ideas, they could start speaking to each other. Uh, they could start uh, uh, trading with each other, and they eventually needed a, a currency. Uh, that they would be able to store value in an, an exchange. And, and when this was on a national level, came the central bank. Uh, we have, uh, we, we've had our own uh, chip printing revolution, right? Uh, with social networks and, and, and digital communication. Um, and, and I think that this is the real challenge that central banks are facing. I, I think that they're being run poorly now, but they're also running an inadequate scope uh, of 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 monetary policy, uh, they're running a national monetary policy in the global economy. Uh, Should they not is, be? Should central banks be involved in in foreign policy? No. So so I think that they should be, uh, as long as we realize that we're all citizens of our states. We still have a national economy; it's a predominant economy in our life. But we have now a new complementary economy, which is a global economy. I'm exposed to the U.S. economy and to the Asian economy, and you are as well, uh, although we, we live uh, 10,000 kilometers uh, uh, from each other. Um, and we need a complement uh, that would tend to this new global scope, and this complement cannot be run by a single nation. Uh, so, so I want to say that we have a lot to learn from central banking and monetary policy uh, if we want to rectify uh, the things that we believe are problematic there. Um, I, I don't believe we should throw the baby with the top water. What aspects of central banking do you see are good and which aspects are bad? So I, I, I want to give you an example that we adopted in Saga. Right When, when central banks got, uh, more than 100 years ago, this fabulous new technology allowing them to take a piece of paper and print the number on it and say, this is money, it didn't mean that anyone trusted this money. And, and so what central banks did was starting to peg this money to the previously trusted contract, gold in, in, in their case, and build intrinsically slowly uh, trust uh, in, in this new form of money that is a result of monetary uh, uh, theory. Um, the understanding that building trust takes time uh, and, and takes uh, uh, um, forward guidance and the ability to plan uh, and, and to be transparent about your plans, I think is a good thing. I think it's decalibrated now with massive printing of money, whether you call it quantitative easing or, or the rest of it. But, but the essence of being able to plan monetary th theory for a long time uh, and to build trust over time, I think is an, um, a, a positive thing. You can see that the successful central banks were able to introduce their fiat currencies, then new currencies, uh, with a relatively low volatility, which is something that I think we're striving to achieve in our industry as well. One of the things, actually, you just brought up another kind of like tangent question is that a lot of um, projects and crypto communities are experimenting with like multiple tokens and multiple coins or multiple currencies, right? Uh, I've only really seen this in Cuba that has two versions of their peso. I think they have like the one that's used for you know, domestically, and then they have like the tourist peso. 
It's like double. They have two different currencies at any given time. You think, can we explore this for a second? Like, how would that work? And what would be some benefits of, of a country? Or is it just a bad idea of a country offering, like having two different currencies, maybe offering a, like, what if the dollar offered a settlement dollar and then they have like a transactional dollar as opposed to, would there be a benefit to that? So, so I, I think that we have other examples uh, quite successful. In Switzerland, you have the, the Swiss franc, but you also have a currency that is called Vir. Um, and, and the Vir can be only settled in Switzerland, and it's a Demarash coin. Um, so uh, it's a coin when you, where you get uh, negative interest um, today, that's true for many other currencies, uh, but, but usually you get yield on, on the uh, Swiss franc and negative interest on the beer. And so they built it in a way that... Wait, wait, wait. So basically this is like staking. So this veer goes negative as your balance of Swiss franc goes up? No, as your balance of veer goes up. The veer is, is, uh, um, is meant to ignite the economy in times of crisis. So... Uh, and you can only spend it in Switzerland. So if, if I was to tell you, Charlie, I want to pay you in uh, a beer, in, in normal time, you would say, no, I want Swiss francs because I can pay with it anywhere. And I'm not paying the penalty of negative interest. But comes a crisis and I tell you, Charlie, I cannot pay you with uh, uh, Swiss francs, but I can pay you in beer and you're willing to take them. And I want to spend more beer than uh, Swiss francs. Uh, because I don't want to gather negative interest. So it's a sort of two different monetary theories that are working in, in uh, um, completing each other, if you want. And the beer is, is already 90 years old. I don't, I'm a little bit confused on what would be the motive on someone spending or saving or using the beer over the Swiss franc. When, when the economy is slow, you, you are willing to accept the beer because you, you, you want business. And I would want to spend my year instead of spending my Swiss francs because my Swiss francs would gather positive interest and my year would gather negative interest. Um, and it's only limited to Switzerland. So it is really an, an, a sort of mechanism to reignite a, a Swiss economy in crisis. And yet, so this would be like a nationalistic thing. So if people were living in Switzerland and they wanted to more for like the sake of the, of the country, that would be the benefit, almost like a, an ignition currency. I'm surprised people don't use like government bonds more as currency and settling in different type of assets. You know, um, do you think that we'll see now in, in crypto? Because you have so many in, in, in the regular world, the assets that provide yields are not generally liquid and tradable. And if they are, there's so many regulations. Like, for example, if I buy a house and it's bringing in 10% a year, and then someone says, hey, Charlie, and I have 10 of them. And someone says, hey, Charlie, I will trade you five of those houses for five, you know, five warehouses that bring in 9%, but appreciate a little bit longer. It's not freely trade, like the, the legal fees and the mechanisms and the way to actually do that trade doesn't really work. And so what I'm explaining to people is that the beauty of that is crypto is that that concept you can now do. You can now have tradable assets, tradable paper. And so stablecoins were was such a big, a big aspect of that. When you were 
What was the stablecoin market like when you were introducing the concept of Saga and in that, like, what was the world? I don't remember. Like, I think it was just Tether back then. Yes. Um, so when we started Saga early 2017, um, when we started drafting the, the, the policies, um, only Tether existed. I believe the market cap of Tether was about $600 million. Um, and, and, and it was all alone there. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it evolves, uh, it evolved dramatically. And, and I believe that it evolves because people still need the, the, this unit of account function of money, the ability to count their value in something relatively stable that, that, uh, that they already trust. So, um, well, you brought up a unit of account and you brought up money. And you keep, I'll keep trying to bring the conversation somewhere and then you take it back somewhere else, but it's all good. The, uh, <laughs> no, no, it's because I love talking about money and, and, and I love, I love, this is what I really like. I love that at the end of almost every episode that I release, I'll get at least one email from someone and they'll say, you know what, Charlie, I learned something new. And if I can get one email from every show of someone learning something new, because I learned something new, then that's success in my book. The success of this show is education and entertainment and informing people. Um, because I think it's this understanding and financial literacy and love uh, of all these different things, like the understanding of political science, sociology, monetary theory, philosophy, anthropology, social sciences. These are things that like you learn about in school, but they're boring. Now with crypto, it makes us understand these things a lot better. And for people that do, it gives you such an edge in your life, uh, not just in business, but the ability to just manage your family's finances. When you understand money and you're not afraid of it, you do better. It's it's not a complicated concept to understand. Right. I, I think it's not complicated. Uh, so it's fairly complicated. But it's scary. But it's, it's scary because it's so abstract. Right. Uh, money eventually is is, uh, is is a sort of a, a result of a social contract, of an agreement between people. Um, the only value of money is the, is, is the value we agree it has. And this is a sort of, of a very abstract terrain to walk in. Uh, it might be scary for some. Uh, I, I find it fascinating. You know, uh, Saga is based in Israel and you guys are, you guys are all based in, in Tel Aviv and Israel. And I want to talk about Israel's uh, monetary history for a second because it's very interesting. Israel's a very young country. Uh, 50, 60 years, I forget, 48. 70, 72, actually. 72. I remember um, celebrating like Israel's 40-something year anniversary in, in when I was in elementary school. Um, how crazy is that? But I remember, so I remember um, when I was, I literally remember this vision. I was on the school bus one day, the yellow school bus, and my friend brought like a big box of Israeli money and he was just giving it away to everyone. And I didn't understand. I, I remember like grabbing it all, bringing it home to my dad. And my father's saying, yeah, this is not worth anything anymore. What happened then? Israel went through like a hyperinflationary stage and it's early and it's, it's uh, what happened? Right. Have, have people studied that? Yes, of course. Uh, so first of all, we are lucky to have uh, Jacob Frankel um, as our advisor. J um, Professor Frankel was the governor of the Bank of Israel in 92. And he is the one who is actually responsible for liberating the exchange rate in Israel. So back when I mean? was a kid... Um, when you wanted to, so back when I, I was a kid, um, Israel has had a more socialist uh, economy, um, if not to say Bolshevik, um, and 
if you wanted to know the exchange rate of the shekel, you had to ask the Bank of Israel. The Bank of Israel would set. It was not a free float uh, exchange rate. It was actually set by the central bank. Why? Uh, which is room for... Uh, so, first of all, this is uh, a part of the basis of, uh, of a planned economy where the, the role of the state, and that was the case then, the role of the state in the Israeli economy was, uh, was a, a, a very um, influential role. And the, the central bank, up until the 90s, the, the central bank controlled the exchange rate, like you see today in, uh, um, in countries that are less of uh, capitalist uh, liberal democracies. Um, and actually, Jacob Frankel uh, changed that by introducing a price bend. So he said, well, if you liberate the shekel price immediately, it will result in tremendous volatility, uh, and we would lose quite a lot. Uh, so instead of that, uh, a price bend assured that is liberating constantly uh, um, um, or gradually more uh, the price, while the bank still is willing, the central bank is still willing to buy and, and to uh, sell the shekel with a bigger spread. Oh, so like... Uh similar to saga in its uh like um so for example if if the if the shekels trading for those who don't know i do video now for those who are not listening to, i have to mention it at once on every podcast untold stories is now a video so i'm holding up a piece of paper and so for those who are not watching a video you can't see this but i'm going to draw out a chart so essentially if the if the shekel f- trades like this what the Central Bank of Israel was was willing to do was create like a floor and a ceiling, essentially? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. There's no question that crypto and gaming have gone hand in hand since the early days of Bitcoin when it first launched. And in fact, that's what really drove mass adoption. Companies like BitCasino, which is the first ever licensed Bitcoin casino, and brands like Sportsbet.io. I mean, it's the reason people are using crypto and Bitcoin today. Fun fast and fair. When you're using uh, blockchain-based gaming, make sure you require that they are fair because there's no reason that they shouldn't be transparent because everything can be seen on the blockchain. Coin gaming is so cool. It's an ecosystem of brands, products, and people that are serious not just about shaking up the gaming industry, but also the crypto industry. These guys have been around since the early days of Bitcoin. The CEO of Coin Gaming used to actually mine for Bitcoin and, and use the Bitcoin miner to heat his home in Estonia. I mean, those go down to like negative 25 degrees. So if you're, if you're cool about driving crypto awareness together, if you got a question or you just want to connect with your team of like dreamers and doers, the whole community, make sure you check them out coingaming.io, play some of their games, sportsbet.io, or BitCasino, fun, fast, and fair. I'm Charlie Sherman. I'll talk to you guys right in a minute. To say, well, if the volatility is becoming too high, we are always willing to buy and to sell from you uh, in, in, a, in a known price. Uh, but your two lines were parallel and they should be expanding. So it started with a very small spread. So the room for price discovery was very small. And as the economy matured, the, the distance between the floor and the ceiling grew bigger uh, and allowing the market more uh, more room for price discovery until it was completely lifted. And today the shekel is just like any other modern currency uh, free floating. Fiat, by federal decree, if you look at it, it's almost like the original Israeli currency. It's by federal decree. Yes, it freely floats, but we know it's manipulated, but that's another conversation. Let's assume today that I'm correct. Um, in that aspect of it, 
all stable coins are like the value are by federal decree. So same same thing. What's the value of a stable coin, Edo? I got to walk into the stable coin store and they tell me what it's worth. Okay, follow right. me for a second. What Saga is now doing is taking that stablecoin concept and doing to it what the Bank of Israel did to the shekel. Exactly. Essentially creating that freely volatile stablecoin that now is is freely uh, tradable and volatile based on supply demand economics. But because it's a stablecoin, there are reserves. Um, <clears throat> and as the market cap grows, the reserve changes. Uh, there is a price floor and ceiling type of mechanism. Can can How can you do that in a transparent way with blockchain that you couldn't do that before without blockchain? And how did the Bank of Israel do it? That's what I want to know. So the Bank of Israel did not do it transparently. The only transparent element was, was the price then. Uh, the reserves were definitely not transparent. Um, you know, <laughs> I, 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 I want to think of, of, uh, uh, of Saga as a sort of a bridge between stablecoin, uh, the stablecoin element, and the free-floating uh, currencies that we know, led obviously uh, by Bitcoin. Um, so w- what we did is, is to uh, implement a bonding curve, uh, which means that it is a continuous uh, supply of token, fully elastic. When one buys Saga from the contract, it is created by the contract. Uh, when one sells it to the contract, they get back their ether and the Saga is being burned. So the number of Sagas in circulation is determined by the market. And we can... And consider that this number is the amount of trust Saga enjoys. When this trust is low, the price band is low, the reserve is 100%. Saga is fully back. When this trust increases, we the, the contract, well, I'm saying we, but it's not we, it's, it's, it's a smart contract and it's a protocol uh, that determines based on the number of currencies outstanding constantly how much uh, the bonding curve needs to, the bonding curve ratio needs to be and what is the price band. And as the economy grows, it allows more room for uh, volatility and more room for uh, price discovery. When the economy is very slow, slow uh, small, sorry, then uh, the reserve, the high reserve rate and the low price band is protecting from volatility. And we no Are longer these- need anyone to take decisions. There is a protocol that is doing it on its own. And so I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. The additional added benefit now with with this technology, blockchain technology, is now on top of that, not only can you do everything you said, but you can also essentially have the uh, early people um, involved in the project or the governors of that central bank uh, potentially uh, be voted out, not be involved anymore. Yes, of course. We, we just went this uh, week uh, through the first vote of Saga. We proposed a change to the model, a change to the decay ratio of the bonding curve. Um, and it was ratified by the holders of Saga. Uh, a month from now, the holders of Saga are open, are uh, able to vote for 10 more functions, uh, like uh, who would be the auditor of the company, like how much of uh, the stablecoin portion of the reserve can be held uh, in, uh, in, in uh, um, interest-bearing uh, crypto instruments. But the, the, the peak for me is November where all the holders of Saga get the right to dissolve the board of Saga to send me and, and the entire board home and to elect a new board. I think that this is a fundamental uh, condition uh, for such a project um, that 
such a project needs to be owned by, by the currency holders and controlled fully by the currency holders and accountable to the currency holders. Imagine if you could uh, send away as a citizen your um, central bank governor uh, because of monetary policy and elect a new governor. Um, so th- this, is, uh, this is really uh, one of the fundaments of our projects. That's that's very interesting how that would work out. Do you see like campaigning or do you, st- how would that, um, I'm just kind of curious how I, the scenarios of how that could play out. So, uh, you, you know, I, I don't know more than, than I know. Do you want to uh, stay? But of course I do. Uh, but I want to stay as long as, uh, as the holders of, of the projects want, uh, want me to stay. Um, I, I, I need to get up in the morning and remind myself that although I am investing my days and night in this for three years now, this is not my project. Um, so yes, I want to stay as long as you want me to. I want to. I want you to stay, but I also want to. <laughs> I want to present you with a scenario that you could help me dissect and understand. When you talk to people, I try to talk to people a lot who um, disagree on everything I say, who do it in somewhat of a respectful way, so I can understand why. One of the the the, the arguments I, I hear still against crypto from people is when they tell me that Charlie, we understand everything that you're saying. We get it. We get it even better than you. But what you to understand is the reason a central bank exists is to provide decisions uh, against herd mentality. And that is to say that when you're in a time of crisis, like a coronavirus or a war, if you have everyone being a stakeholder of the central bank, they may make a rash decision for the short term as opposed to the long term. And I understand that. And I and I and this is this is what struggles me is like, I do agree with that. And I do agree with that saying like, here we are in COVID-19. I'm not a monetary economist. And I do know that some of these guys who do work for the central banks here or the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Israel are a lot smarter and a lot better and more well-equipped to make financial decisions for my better well-being than I am. But at the same time, we know most people are not and they're corrupt and there's embezzlement. So it's like a balance on both sides, right? How do you feel about that? So <laughs> I, I, I agree with them and I agree with you. Uh, and I think that the, I've had the, that problem all the time. The, the truth is in the balance. Uh, decentralization, full decentralization, direct democracy comes with a price. It comes with the price of populism. It comes with, with the price of, of herd dynamics. Uh, sometimes this price is worth paying. If I would tell you that everyone taking decisions in your name, uh, that is an expert, is corrupt, you would tell me, well, I prefer being populist and, and unsavvy and take my decisions for myself. Uh, but sometimes this price is not, is, is not worthwhile paying. And this is why in Saga we have four different branches of decisions. The supply of money, printing money, is only to the protocol. It's fully decentralized. Interesting. Because this is exactly where there is a too big of a temptation to, uh, it is very tempting to print money out of thin air. Um, I was talking to um, uh, Dan Larimer last week on the show, and we brought up this project. And we actually discussed this very topic about the balance of central banking and, and you know, where he stands and where he stands, whether he's radical. And his idea and he's actually trying to build out and he's launching this whole new consensus algorithm because that's what Dan Larimer does as he launched a lot of coins and tokens is that he has this whole new concept. And let me try to see if I can explain it accurately. Instead of doing like a direct, a direct democracy type of thing in crypto, 
And instead of doing like a block producer type of direct democracy where you're like with delegated proof of stake that you're voting for that person, he proposes a different type of situation where it's like, I forget what he calls it, but you vote for pods. So it's like, let's just say there are a hundred stakeholders. Uh, all hundred of them get randomly put together in these groups of 10, for example. And those groups of 10 vote for the person who can then vote on their behalf. And then it creates like almost like a, like a voting pyramid type of thing. And what that does is it creates a layer of preventing what we just talked about are these rash decisions to be made because you create a level of like, okay, I'm not voting for like me. I'm not voting for like a million people, but I'm voting for these 10 people who are part of my family and friends. So it's like you have a moral obligation to these 10 people type of thing. Sure. So, so we resolved it differently. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, when it comes to monetary policy, we have a monetary committee that takes those decisions, but those decisions are all subject to a veto right by the, the holders of Saga. Uh, so there is room for expertise in some areas, but this room for expertise is always elected by the holders of the currency and is always subject, accountable to them, subject to the ratification of decisions, as, as we've just done uh, with the, the latest change to the, to, the monetary, uh, to the monetary policy. Can you expand a little bit more on that, though? On, on the change itself? Yeah. Sure. Uh, so... so there are three main elements to the change. Uh, the first element to the change is that we, uh, um, so as, as uh, we've mentioned previously, uh, SAG is built on a, on a bonding curve mechanism, being that when the currency is very small, there is 100% of reserve, and the price of SAGA, we hold our reserve in the SDR. It's a basket of the five most traded currencies. It's, it's a basket set by the IMF uh, that central banks are actually holding for their reserve. Uh, and funnily enough, uh, in the past four years, with the decline of the dollar, uh, the SDR went up because it mitigates uh, from holding a single currency. So the model says that when we're very small, we are at 100% reserve. When we grow, the, the intrinsic appreciation of Saga starts developing. And we've changed this curve uh, to allow uh, slightly more volatility at the beginning uh, of the currency. Um, and we did it because we understand up until now we were a, a pure academic monetary experiment and now we are evolving and we need to introduce uh, a system of incentives for early adopters to, uh, uh, to be the first ones to, to join uh, the Saga ecosystem. And this is what we did uh, by the means of, of altering the, the monetary model. Um, we also accelerated our governance decentralization. So everything I just told you, ratifying the change of the model, 10 more functions for people to vote on, being able in November to dismiss the board and elect a new one. This is the recent change as well. And we've also changed the name from Saga to Sober. Um, sorry, the, the ticker changed accordingly from SGA to SGR. Saga in North is the name of, of the Northern uh, mythology, and Sober is the plural of Saga. Um, so it's, it's a part of our evolution as well. This, this, this experiment that is, um, so how do you see it playing out in five years? Like, what are some scenarios that we could see happening with like a robust, um, community of people that want to be a part of this, uh, new money? So I, I, I think that the, the, the plausible scenario that I can envisage is first for Sogur 
to serve as a store of value. Because of its reliance on the SDR, because of what is surrounding us, we're speaking of the crypto industry, but, but the entire world around us is shaking uh, with trade wars, with massive printing of money. And I think that people are more and more realizing that uh, uh, putting their entire livelihood into one currency. Uh, and, and, you know, most people that are not sophisticated traders uh, are not holding a lot of different assets. They are holding mostly cash. And they are the most exposed to those yeah. fluctuations. And so I think that Saga is first going to be uh, adopted by those who, who want not to be exposed only to their national currency, but to, to a basket of currency that offsets the risks of, uh, of, such, uh, uh, of such volatility of currencies. But then the next step uh, is using Saga as a medium for, of exchange for transnational, for global commerce. So just to give you an example, right? If, you, if you're a British citizen, and after Brexit, the pound went down by 25%, when you purchase in Britain, you are actually fine because the British economy reacts to the same Brexit. But when you go and buy on Amazon, you lost 25% of your purchasing power uh, because the prices on Amazon are not reacting to the British economy. If you held Saga, uh, you wouldn't have lost this. And, and this is how I see it uh, uh, playing out eventually as, as a complementary global currency to, to the currencies that are out there. Could... Uh... You think crypto could ever be added in the basket of SDR? Like, what about gold and things like that? Or do they keep it to national currencies only? No, the SDR is uh, is dollar dominated. It's dollar, euro, uh, renminbi or yuan, uh, yen, and and pound. And and the renminbi was added only very recently, a few years ago. Um, so it's a basket that changes very very slowly. In the future. I think it depends on the predominance of cryptocurrencies in in the overall global economy. Uh, eventually, when when we become a bigger part of the game, I don't think it is uh, um, um, it, it can be avoided um, to to add us uh, to such basket. I believe it will take a long time. What will be the relationships between all these different cryptocurrencies? I wonder down the road. I think about that because there are like you know atomic swaps, and you have um, wrapped Bitcoin, you know, so you can wrap a Bitcoin on the Ethereum blockchain or whatever. So you have peg coins and stable coins and such. Mm -hmm. I always wonder like what the relationship will be. And I wonder like, what will the, the coin market cap or the crypto landscape look like five years from now, or even 10 years from now? I can't believe we are where we are today in 10 years. Um, and I, not unfortunately, but I think that we, I think that adoption has gone, uh, so fast, it worries me a little bit how fast crypto is growing. Um, simply because I don't think Satoshi foresaw the world shit happening kind of this quickly after he released Bitcoin. It's not so, really a question; it's more of a statement. But yeah. I want to hear your thoughts. I, you know, I, I think that uh, I, I, I would be very happy for us to evolve slower because it would mean that the world is doing better than it does now. Um, unfortunately, I believe that we'll have to evolve very quickly uh, uh, because the, the world is facing a crisis. And I think that this is not just a monetary or a financial crisis. It's, it's a sort of a governance crisis um, and, and a social crisis that has monetary and financial aspects. And I believe that cryptocurrencies could be a part of a solution, not so much because of the technology, but because they're enabling 
different types of organization that are enabling people from different countries, from different states, to organize together with, um, with a financial logic, with a system of incentives together. Uh, and I think that this is something that is sorely missing in the um, quote-unquote traditional world. Um, and, and so I, I, I believe that we will see a very significant evolution of cryptocurrencies in the few years. I really hope that this is a, a true fundamental evolution. For, for me, the, the market cap is, is important, but it's not most important. The question is, who is adopting cryptocurrencies and for, for which reasons? You know, That's a you, good question. When That's you go question. to Argentina and Venezuela, um, and, and, and today you see it in Turkey as well and in Brazil more and more, you see people that are not having those philosophical discussions about cryptocurrencies. Uh, for them, cryptocurrency is, uh, uh, is, is of immediate usage. Right? If you live in Argentina, uh, you lost 70% of the value of, of the peso in the past three years. And if you're able to hold Bitcoin, you have a better store of value. And you pay with it for your groceries. This is an adoption that I like because it really solves the problem, a daily problem for people. Uh, it's not about speculation. It's not about uh, uh, the philosophy behind thing. It's about a very practical problem that they are facing and that we are able to solve for them. I was very short-sighted when it came to um, I was very short-sighted when it came to stablecoins because in the beginning I was um, saying that what stablecoins are basically just crypto fiat coins, but I was wrong because the value of them comes from the folks that you just described, the ones that need this, that need a a a, a currency, digital currency now. Because their 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 government currencies are just not working, they're failing. A lot of these people love Bitcoin, but they don't want to use Bitcoin for reasons that they don't want to sell it or they it's too volatile or whatever. So I was wrong about that. I was a little bit short sighted on that on that. But um, yeah, it's interesting how adoption. I thought what 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 I thought the way I thought this would be was you would have like Bitcoin and you'd have a killer app or something, just the world would just adopt Bitcoin and it would just be this thing that would be would it be in, in existence like bagels or everything else. What I didn't foresee is this world of altcoins come to the fold. And what these altcoins did was, is not create an alternative to Bitcoin, but these altcoins created alternative to everything else. And so what these altcoins became is basically like owning a piece of that infrastructure that's changing things like central banking and title insurance and uh, uh, manufacturing and all these different things. Uh, and Bitcoin chooses to do one thing really, really well, and that's what it does. And so, um, yeah, this is me admitting that I was short-sighted on that. It happens. I, I, I think it's amazing to have the ability to have this variety. Eventually, yeah. we're all experimenting. We're still in the experiment phase, right? Um, we are a young industry uh, uh, that exists for a very short time uh, that is still finding its way and we're experimenting and I don't see a reason to limit ourselves to one experiment. It is definitely not uh, an efficient thing to do if we want to strive for mature solutions. Um, and some of the solutions we come up with will die. Some of them will be successful and, and different solutions will be successful in different use cases and for different people. 
So I, I, I really see a, a sort of cohabitation between a lot of cryptocurrencies that are solving many different, uh, many different problems. Yeah, I agree. There's this famous scene in a movie that I saw back when I was in school, and it was like they were trying a vaccine for something, and they were just testing everything, even though they knew half of this stuff wasn't going to work. Like they were testing, will chocolate kill the virus? Of course, chocolate won't kill the virus. But you have to have like a like a, a, a scale, a spectrum. You have to, to try things that you know for sure won't work because it'll be a control. And that's kind of how I look at the crypto industry now is, yeah, there are a lot of things like, especially now with DeFi, we know like sushi swap and whatever is not going to work long term, but it's more of like that experiment now and seeing how they play out. Yeah, a lot of people are stupid and are losing money on all this crap. And I personally don't buy um, a lot of these tokens that are offering just these crazy yields because I don't want to lose my shirt. But at the, at the end of the day, a lot of people are and they and they have every right to. Definitely. And here I think that comes in another element, which is responsibility. Uh, we experiment, we need to experiment responsibly, which means that uh, uh, the, the token holders should have the ability to exert control over their assets. Uh, transparency is key. One of the elements that we, we uh, invested a lot of time and resources in is creating uh, the Saga model as, as a predictable model. So at any time, if you tell me how many Sagas there are in the world, uh, we can... Uh, the, 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 the model, the, the protocol can tell you uh, what would be the bonding curve rate, uh, what would be the monetary uh, model pricing willing to buy and sell back the token. Uh, we, we believe that predictability and, and transparency are two key features uh, to be able to experiment on, experiment on one hand, uh, but do it in a responsible way to, to the holders of, of, of Saga and, and other projects. How um, how are you feeling about with Saga now and with this vote and everything moving forward? So we're very very happy to 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 have the proposal that we've met, made uh, uh, approved. Um, I, I think that now starts the um, the most interesting phase uh, of the project. Uh, it really meets uh, meets its markets um, and it really meets the holders that are going to be the sovereigns of the projects and taking decisions for, for the project. Um, and, and, you know, up until now, we've been working in our sort of cocoon, um, which is nice and pleasant, uh, but now I'm very happy. We, we have answers to give the market, and we have to persuade the market that we're worthy to continue and lead the project, uh, which enters a, a new dynamic uh, that I think is very healthy for the, for the project. I'm, I'm very excited. And I know a lot of people are. Um, what what are some good resources people can go to now uh, to see what's going on with the project? Um, what's changed and and how are things moving forward? Where can where can listeners go to check it out? So we, we have a, a project Telegram group um, that you're all in, very much invited to join, uh, as well as the social channels. Uh, on our website, there is a um, resources section. Um, that is rather heavy lifting, a monetary model of about 80 pages, uh, but um, one that describes uh, really the bits and bytes of, of the bonding curve uh, model, of the price band, everything that we've discussed. Um, I, I believe these are the, the, main, uh, the main sources to, to discover more. Awesome. Ido, thank you so much for taking the time and, and coming on the show today. 
Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. It was a pleasure. You know, a lot of listeners are going to be excited and, and check it all out. And, and um, we're excited to, to have a follow-up in a few months and see how things are going. But I'm sure, more excited for the whole industry itself. <laughs>